The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Well, it's feeling like spring out there as we tape the takeout this Friday afternoon. Hi there, Chris Losinski, Katie Lannon, and Caitlin Bedayan. How you doing? Hey, Sam. Happy Friday. Thought out. Hi, Sam. <laughs> Thought out indeed. And uh, as the seasons change, we see the legislature starting to get into the swing of things. We saw this week some reps and staff starting to move into new offices. We saw the final chairman appointment of the start of the session. We'll get to that later on in the podcast. Uh, And we also saw one of the first policy-related formal sessions for this new year. And it was in that House session on Wednesday that we saw two revived efforts pass the House, a ban on uh, LGBT conversion therapy in Massachusetts and a repeal of the so-called welfare cap on kids. So uh, Katie and Chris, we're going to start off with you folks just to run through uh, what happened in the House on Wednesday. And Chris, tell us a little bit about this conversion therapy ban that passed, because as we said, that was a revived uh, bill from last session. Uh, What was different this time around? Sure. Yeah, you're right about that, Sam. There wasn't all too much different in the exact text of the bill itself. It was something that had support in the House and the Senate last session, but ultimately just did not have enough momentum to get to the governor's desk in time to be signed into law. Um, The vote was 147 to 8, which is actually a better margin than when it passed. Last year, this is a bill that prevents state licensed therapists from attempting to change a minor's sexual orientation or gender identity. Um, Massachusetts, if this passes the Senate and reaches the governor's desk and is signed, as observers expect it to do so, Massachusetts will become the 16th state, along with the District of Columbia, to outlaw this practice. It's something that uh, mental health experts and LGBTQ groups all pretty roundly denounce um, conversion therapy as scientifically unsafe sound as something that causes depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts in minors who are basically made to to doubt who they themselves know to be. Now, there were a couple of amendments filed, a couple by uh, Norfolk Republican Sean Dooley and one from Bill Ricker Republican Mark Lombardo. Uh, what, what, how were they trying to change this bill? Yeah, yeah, you're right, Sam. Um, those amendments, you know, tried to exempt talk therapy from this ban. Um, uh, Representative Lombardo was the one who put that forward, saying that Uh, The ban as written would be a suppression of free speech rights because therapists would not be allowed to, you know, speak to their minor. Uh, patients about the option of uh, conversion therapy. Um, Dooley's amendments would have extended these restrictions to unlicensed practitioners, basically anyone who does that kind of work um, outside of uh, the state-licensed group of people who do that work. Uh, None of the amendments were successful. Actually, in fact, none of the amendments themselves were explicitly voted on. Um, Rep. K. Khan, who uh, authored this bill, raised objections that because these amendments were based on a different version of the legislation, legislation, a version actually written by Dooley, uh, that they were not relevant and shouldn't be taken up by the House. House leadership agreed with her, and it went to roll call votes, and a majority of the House agreed that these amendments shouldn't even be considered as part of uh, part of this bill as well. Even so, though they dealt with similar subject matter. Right, they dealt with similar subject matter. The argument that opponents to the amendments made was that because they were based on a different version of the legislation, they had no bearing on the bill that was actually before the House on Wednesday, and that, that drew quite a lot of frustration 
administration from the Republican authors of these amendments who felt that, once again, uh, that debate was being suppressed on the floor and that they weren't being allowed to express any sort of views on the topic. Yeah, and a couple of Democrats joined with them on those uh, on those votes. Uh, now, the ultimate vote on conversion therapy ban was 147 to 8. And uh, briefly, as an aside, um, there was an unusual situation uh, where the House actually took that vote twice. Yes, Sam, you're right about that. The first time the vote was taken, Independent Representative Susanna Whips was recorded as a no, uh, basically voting against the ban that she did not support a ban on conversion therapy. Um, about an hour and a half later, the House suddenly decided to take the vote a second time unanimously um, in favor of, of allowing that vote to be recast, and uh, Whips was recorded as a yes this time. It looks like there might have been some kind of an error behind the initial no vote. Uh, Representative Whips is someone who voted in favor of this ban when it came up last session. She co-sponsored this legislation this session, so it did seem kind of unusual for a co-sponsor to suddenly vote against the bill. She later said that um, basically there was just an error on her part. She thought that she voted yes in favor of it, but that the vote machine recorded as it as a no. And uh, those in the House were willing to, to basically do the whole process over again to allow her to go on the record as a yes. Sure. Katie? Yeah, it was kind of a, a weird scene when this happened. Chris and I were, were trading off on, on House coverage on Wednesday. And you could tell, you know, Rep Whips after this vote looked pretty upset. And several other lawmakers, including members of, you know, the leadership of both parties were kind of coming over to talk to her and confer with her. And we saw uh, Rep David LaBeouf of Worcester um, posted on Twitter after the fact right. that he and some other lawmakers saw the green light, uh, indicating a yes vote, of course, um, come up next to her name originally, and something happened that it switched to red. So it was whatever happened, they, they seemed to resolve it to their satisfaction, but you, you don't typically see something like that take place on the floor. You'll often see members added to a roll call vote after the fact. They may have missed the vote, but typically right. once a vote's taken, it's, it's taken. Right, but they extended her uh, that courtesy in this case. That's right. Yeah, Katie, let's switch over to you to talk about that second bill of Wednesday's session, the repeal of the cap on kids. Uh, we heard from Matt Murphy last week about what the cap was and, and sort of its origin story from back mm -hmm, in 1995. Right. Yeah, and I will uh, spare our regular listeners from having to go over all that again and listen to the same spiel a second time. But, you know, and I think it was actually uh, Rep Sarah Peak when talking about the conversion therapy ban compared it to Groundhog Day. Both of these issues huh. are something that the House did less than a year ago um, and the the speed at which they went through the cap on kids bill kind of reflected that. It was less than 25 minutes from introduction to passage. Uh, there was only one no vote and no real debate, although Minority Leader Brad Jones did uh, unsuccessfully try to send the bill back to committee. There was one amendment offered and withdrawn. It came from uh, Drake It Rep Colleen Gary, who was also the only vote against the bill. She had, in her uh, amendment, suggested a, a reporting requirement dealing with welfare, requiring the Department of Transitional Assistance to report to lawmakers annually on all sorts of statistics, including the, the length of time families have been on welfare, percentage uh, who are participating in work requirements, the number of mothers, the number of fathers. So really just get some more information about the program. Um, ultimately, no vote cast on that. Uh, continuing the theme of the day, I guess, with amendments, because right. she did withdraw it. Right. And um, 
but that was a real quick debate where lack of de- there was no debate. Uh, but Minority Leader Jones uh, trying to send that bill back to the Ways and Means Committee. Uh, he had sort of a procedural reason for that, right? That's right. It didn't contain a, a fiscal note, he said, indicating how much it would cost the state. But I think d- despite that, there's really a broad consensus on doing this uh, cap lift, so-called, in, in one way or another. Um, the whether it is with or without the reforms Governor Baker wants uh, remains a question to be seen. But both branches have passed it this session. In addition to last session, the Senate version is included in a, a supplemental budget that's still floating out there. Mm, um, right. And uh, what are we going to see happen with that, do you think? Great question. Uh, Chris and I have been trying to find this out this week. We um, got kind of different answers on whether this bill should go to a conference committee. Uh, Senate Minority Leader Bruce Tarr would like to see it go to one. House Second Assistant Majority Leader Paul Donato said that typically he thinks that these kinds of things don't need to go to a conference committee to be resolved. Strangely enough, the Senate voted on its version of the supplemental budget last Thursday, I believe, so eight days ago from when we're recording. And just yesterday, the House Clerk's Office received that language, and those in the Clerk's Office were waiting for word from House leadership on how to proceed. So there was a, a I, I don't, you guys might know better than I do how unusual that week-long gap is, but uh, it does seem to have thrown up a bit of delay. Yeah, sometimes it it can take some time for the the papers to physically make the trek across the hall, but it certainly, you know, these are fiscal 19 accounts that uh, need to be replenished, and the, I guess, fate of how the cap on kids lift is accomplished, whether it's in the budget or through a a standalone bill, is uh, really up in the air here, and the ball appears to be in the House's court. Something to watch for next week, maybe. Certainly. Now, immediately after the House adjourned on Wednesday, they went down to the first floor, rooms A1 and A2, had a private caucus, and, well, Katie, it was... A short caucus with loud applause, I think, were were the speaker's words afterwards. That's right. And uh, Sam, you and I were both outside that caucus waiting to see what happened and weren't waiting very long. They were only in there about two minutes. And half of that was really the the round of applause for newly minted uh, House Tourism Committee Chairman Paul McMurtry. He'll he'll join Lowell Senator Ed Kennedy as the, the chairs of that committee and the appointment was really made possible by a, a report that was filed in the clerk's office clearing uh, Rep. McMurtry of allegations of, of misconduct, sexual harassment that had been uh, alleged to occur at the kind of legislature's freshman orientation out in Amherst in December. Right, at a cocktail hour. That's right. Um, he was in in kind of a, a vague situation. We don't know much about it because there are so many confidentiality protections in place. Um, it, the uh, allegation was raised that he may have inappropriately touched a, uh, a member-elect, a female new rep. And the, the committee, whose members we, we still don't even know, right. um, in their report suggested that there there may have been some unintentional contact, but they couldn't find evidence that uh, Representative McMurtry had deliberately, inappropriately touched this uh, anonymous female lawmaker. Right. And so what we learned Wednesday were the results of review of, what was it, 40 hours of videotape, dozens of interviews with lawmakers and staff. Yeah, I think 19 interviews in total. It was really the, the first test um, of the new sexual harassment investigation and reporting process that the House adopted 
a year ago. Right. Uh, just about. And uh, Representative McMurtry, for his part, he said he was grateful to have had the opportunity to participate in a process that uncovered the truth. His words uncovered the truth. He said he might never know why false public statements were made about him, but that he believes sexual misconduct is a serious matter that requires daily vigilance to eradicate from the workplace and culture. Right. Thanks, Katie. Chris, the week kicked off with that highly anticipated vote by the MBTA's oversight board over fare hikes. We saw a number of compromises agreed to during that meeting on Monday. Uh, Walk us through some of what's still going to change and what might stay the same going forward. Sure, absolutely, Sam. Much like uh, the so-called cap on kids repeal, I won't walk through all of the background that we went into last week to spare our regular listeners. (laughs) But uh, at Monday's Fiscal and Management Control Board meeting, the five board members voted four to nothing to approve a set of fare increases for the MBTA's rail and ferry services set to take effect July 1st. Um, What is new in that, the compromise that was reached on Monday, is that bus fares will be exempt from this fare increase. They will stay the same at 170 per bus ride, um, senior passes, student passes, the other kinds of discount uh, options available will also remain level. This is an attempt by the board to, to extend some sign of goodwill to the lower income riders. A lot of the complaints about these fare increases, in addition to uh, criticizing the fact that service is not where riders want it to be, focus on the fact that low income riders would be disproportionately affected by their, uh, their rates going up, that they already Uh, are strained to pay for this and would have to unfairly bear the brunt of that. So the board decided to keep those certain fares um, outside the scope of these fare increases. And they also agreed that uh, no future fare increases will take place for three years from now. Now, by law, by state law, the the MBTA can consider fare increases every two years. So this might not be legally binding from the Fiscal and Management Control Board, but it is a sign that they want to wait three years um, uh, basically to, to give the agency more time to invest in service and bring the improvements that riders want before they go back to those same riders and ask for more money. And will the Fiscal and Management Control Board still be an extant body in three years' time? No, it won't. So that's actually the the complication and, and one of the reasons that, you know, this vote may end up being more symbolic than impactful. But as it stands right now, there does seem to be some sense there that uh, that members recognize the limits of fare increases. Um, you know, fare increases are always controversial among the public, but I, I would say with this cycle, we saw a lot more recognition of that from the those in charge of overseeing the MBTA itself. Mm. Monica Tibbetts-Nutt, one of the board's five members, abstained. We heard a lot from her. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, she, she was pretty pretty vocal and, and said some pretty interesting things. She ended up abstaining from the final fare increase vote, saying it was premature because there wasn't clear enough information how exactly the uh, now $29.5 million a year in new revenue would go to improving customer-facing um, components of the MBTA's system. Other members ended up voting in favor of it, but made very clear that what they want to do going forward is get involved on Beacon Hill in looking for other ways to support public transit across the Commonwealth. And up here on Beacon Hill, we actually heard from a couple lawmakers uh, shortly after that vote was taken uh, that they want to change some of the arrangement of the Fiscal and Management Control Board. 
Yep, yep. So uh, two lawmakers, two freshman lawmakers, Senator Becca Rausch and Representative Maria Robinson, filed a bill on Tuesday, one day after the fair hike vote, that would increase the board from five members to seven members. Those two new members would be explicitly designed to represent riders, one from the core subway and bus network, one from the commuter rail network, um, arguing that you know riders need their views better represented on this board. So, Chris, in the hunt for new revenues, what are... Uh, what are the options here? And I know we heard from the House Speaker that everything's on the table. What is everything? Yeah, so so it's it's the, the most common options cited are some combination of an increase to the state's gas tax, which has only been raised once since 1991 and ranks somewhere around 30th among all states in the country, uh, an implementation of congestion toll pricing, where tolls on highways and tunnels would be lower at off-peak times to try and encourage people not to cram the roads at 8.30 in the morning and 5.30 at night. And the, the third option that we, we hear a lot about in recent weeks is uh, is higher fees on TNCs, which are Ubers and Lyfts, those rideshare apps that we all use. Currently, they have to uh, users pay a twenty cent flat fee for every ride. Um, this is something that members of the T's control board all cited as possible options. Said they wanted to talk with lawmakers about how possible these are. Um, House Speaker Robert DeLeo, like you mentioned, said this week that all options are on the table. Joe Boncori, the uh, Senate Chair of the Joint Committee on Transportation, was was happy with that. So it's not really clear which of those has the the highest chance of passing going forward, but it does seem like those are the three most likely things that lawmakers are going to be investigating as other sources of transportation revenue. The big challenge that they face is getting enough consensus from the business community, getting consensus from Governor Charlie Baker, who has expressed some hesitation about new taxes and fees in this way, and uh, getting yeah, uh, voters on board. Yeah, Senator Bonquari said that uh, Charlie Baker would be sort of the potential obstacle here in something like a gas tax. Exactly. He, he identified getting the governor's support is the, the biggest challenge that transportation advocates face. One of the things that DeLeo mentioned was indexing the gas tax. This is something that passed the legislature in 2013. And just a year later, voters at the ballot box voted to repeal the index of the gas tax, um, I- increasing it every year to account for inflation. So there's going to have to be some some tough conversations and probably some pretty lengthy debate about what, if any, of these options are really viable in Massachusetts. But, you know, with the urgency of the fare hikes driving it, I think that we're going to see those conversations take center stage. Right. And on center stage uh, this week at the Greater Boston Chamber, the speaker uh, gave sort of an ultimatum to business leaders and the speaker who for several years has been hesitant to put forward new taxes or, God forbid, broad-based uh, revenues. Uh, he, he told the business leaders to come to him with what they think people might be willing to get behind. Yeah, you're right about that. A lot of this is going to run through the speaker because bills have been filed. There are at least two bills that I know of, one that would um, change the 20 cent flat fee on Ubers and Lyfts to one that's a percentage of every ride, another one that would launch a a pilot program for congestion pricing. So it's really going to be up to the Transportation Committee and leadership in both branches to uh, bring this forward and, and see if this debate is actually going to have any momentum this cycle. Gotcha. We'll be watching. Now, also joining us on the takeout this Friday afternoon is Caitlin Bedayan. Caitlin is the news services co-op from Northeastern University uh, this term, and uh, she produced the takeout for us the other week when I was out of town. Thanks again for doing that, Caitlin. 
Now, you, uh, you attended a screening at the State House this week of a new documentary on addiction, uh, substance addiction, and uh, heard from a panel there. And, and that documentary you were telling us really uh, backed up what the Harm Reduction Commission had already said. Yeah, Sam. So that documentary is called Nova Addiction. If anybody's interested, you can watch that online on PBS's website for free right now. Um, and it was very interesting. A lot of what the documentary focused on was treatment of addiction. And much like what the Harm Reduction Commission came to at its conclusion, said that a big part of treating addiction has to do with safe consumption sites or safe injection sites. Uh, the documentary went up to Canada and talked to a lot of the organizers at some of the injection sites they have up there. And then a lot of the panelists, especially from the medical community, really agreed that that is a big part of caring for people with addiction and helping them improve. Gotcha. And some of the panelists talked a lot about the stigma of addiction. Yeah, so one of the big points was that when people think that addiction is something distant from them, they think it's like a moral failing when really it's much more of a disease. And so when you're treating it not as a disease but as this like moral issue, then it's sort of a thing where you don't expect to help these people because they're bad people making a bad choice. So why would you have things like these consumption sites where you're helping them do these bad things? And uh, also this week you, you went to I really wish I could have gone uh, a uh, an event around service dogs at the state house, and uh, you got to meet one. As a matter of fact, I think. Yeah, that was pretty fun. Canine uh, Companions for Independence came up to the state house to talk a little bit about their new program to get service dogs for veterans with PTSD and help them sort of treat the symptoms of that disorder. And so that was pretty exciting. I got to meet Angelo, one of the service dogs for one of their handlers, Emma Riley, who works at the Brockton VA. And the two of them get to go and they speak with homeless veterans or veterans who are near homelessness to sort of help them work through some of those issues. So uh, what are your impressions of Beacon Hill in the Statehouse since you uh, came up here a couple of months ago? Uh, it's really interesting to see a lot of the behind-the-scenes stuff that goes on, especially as the new session has started, seeing how things work out from somewhere much more inside than I would if I was just reading things on my own. Um, so to see how everything develops firsthand is really interesting. Um, I found out about this position actually because I knew the last co-op, Chris Trianfo, and he had, there's a lot of what he said was, it's a crazy experience because you get to see everything that's going on. Up close, yeah. And Chris helped us out a lot with the podcast as well, so thanks <laughs> to him and to you, and uh, glad you've been enjoying it, and you've been writing a lot for us. So if, uh, if listeners of the podcast who are uh, news service readers or subscribers have been seeing your name on some stories. Uh, this is the voice behind the name. All right. Thanks very much, folks. Uh, guys, uh, you have any uh, any corned beef and cabbage takeout coming up this weekend? Oh, that's not a takeout style meal. Mine's going to be home cooked. <laughs> Pass. <laughs> hey, now. Nothing better than a New England boiled dinner. All right. Happy St. Patrick's Day, folks. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.